0: What's up, precious people? We are back at it. This is week four in our sermon series on James the Sage. Thank you so much for joining us. Our text for this week is difficult. Okay, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. So I want you to stick with me here as we unpack it. This is James chapter one, beginning in verse nine. It says, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position." But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. The word of God for the people of God. I have here in my notes printed out, Dang! Dang! like the first the first word here is when you think about this passage dadgon that is that is hard that's a hard teaching uh, James is not messing around here and this is early in the book like he's setting the tone here but did, did you miss it maybe you missed it and I wouldn't blame you if you did the NIV is taking some liberties here in this first line it reads believers which that's not really too bad the the Greek is ha Adelphos which literally means brothers Um... But believers is is okay because it seems as though James is referring to the Jewish Christian community to whom he is writing, and brothers should not be uh, necessarily a gendered term. This is inclusive. It's brothers and sisters. So believers, great. Believers in humble circumstances, it says, ought to take pride in their high position. But what is a humble circumstance? What does that mean? It could could be anything, right? If you're just thinking about it uh, wherever you are right now, it could be the trials that that we're going through, like in verse two, where it says, "Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters." Same term there, ha adelphos, uh, and it's it's inclusive. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, it could be indicative of of that. Like those are the humble circumstances, and we might be tempted to insert any of the issues that we face, whether they be relational or vocational or familial or I don't know. Just hypothetically speaking the ramifications of a global pandemic and months and months of national disagreement on proper protocols and next steps maybe uh, that that's a humble circumstance i think now a more literal translation of this line would be let the brothers and sisters who are lowly boast in being raised up but again that's probably not too clear those who are lowly it seems more like a characteristic or an attribute of of someone in fact we, we tend to think of being lowly as the posture of following Jesus, you know, being humble, meek, being subservient, placing others before ourselves, loving others, fighting for justice, that sort of thing. But, but look, at the, look at the contrast in the next verse, and this will help us to see what's going on with a bit more clarity. It says, Believers in humble circumstances, or brothers and sisters who are lowly, ought to boast in their high position, but the rich the Plusias should boast in their humiliation. One New Testament scholar named Luke Timothy Johnson says the meaning of this term, Plusias is not in doubt. It refers specifically to material wealth. And if that's the contrast between those in humble circumstances and the Plusias, the rich, then the humble circumstances that James is talking about is poverty. Let the brothers and sisters who are lowly, who are poor, who are in a different socioeconomic bracket. This is not a spiritual term here. This is not indicative of spiritual poverty. He says, let them boast in being raised up. And the rich, the Plusias, those who have great material wealth, let them boast in being brought low. Now, again, this is the fourth sermon on James, and I think nearly every week I've said something about the rich and the poor. You're probably sick of it already, which is good because I don't want you to run from it. This, This book, as I've been arguing, it probably has as its backdrop or setting economic injustice or economic exploitation. That's important for us to grab onto. It's very dissimilar from our situation. Uh, Most likely, this is the trial that's facing the community to whom James is writing. They're being challenged to see their uh, economic exploitation as a source of pure joy, which we've unpacked in in weeks previous. And and I know this makes us very uncomfortable because according to most standards, we are the Plusios. Uh, A few years ago, I was introduced by a friend of mine to the Global Wealth Calculator. Now, this is something you can Google and and you can go exploring, but basically it's something that allows you to input your yearly income and it tabulates how rich you are compared to the rest of the world. So uh, a few weeks ago, I ran some numbers and I didn't do any fact checking whatsoever. So take this as a grain of salt, uh, but also from the things that I've read previously, it seems to be close, uh, but you know, whatever. If you have worked a summer job and that's the only thing you've, you've done, that's the only income that you have received. And let's say you made about $3,000 over the course of, of three months, which really wouldn't be a, a terribly great wage. If you made that $3,000 and that's all that you made for the year, you would still be richer than half of the world's population if you are a single person with no kids and you work a full-time job that doesn't pay you really well, let's say you make $25,000 before taxes, which again, not a good, not a good wage. You would be richer with that $25,000 and no kids. You'd be richer than 92% of the world's population. If you're married and you have two kids and your household combines for $50,000, again, not a great situation, not a great wage, you would be richer than 90% of the world's population. Now, let's just up the ante a little bit. If you're a single person, no kids, and you work a full-time job, and you make about $35,000, you'd be richer than 97% of the world's population. If you're married with two kids and you combine for about $75,000, roughly the same thing, you'd be richer than 95% of the world's population. So certainly according to the world's standards, we are the Plusias, We are the rich. Now, of course, a bunch of these numbers do not equate to you being filthy rich here in America. I mean, if you're single and you make 25 grand a year, that does not mean that your life will be easy. It does not mean that you'll be able to pay off your college loans and also find a nice apartment, especially in Salisbury, where rent is a sort of high. Um, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that, that just because we are rich according to the world's population, that doesn't equate to our richness here in America. But still, these numbers are staggering. I would also say that for most people that are listening to this podcast, I would say that most of us still classify as the Plusias. Uh, and, And the rest of you, you're on your way. Right?' You're, you're doing whatever it is that you need to do, whether that be getting a college degree, whether that mean just working the ladder of, of success and and moving up in scale. It is probably the case that that we are heading in the direction of the Plusias rather than those who are being economically exploited or facing economic injustice. And that is to say nothing of the the wage gap that should be addressed. and and could be addressed in, in other talks, okay? But for most of us, I think that we feel better talking about humbling circumstances rather than seeing this as a stark contrast between the rich and the poor. If the term here is meant to describe poverty, it becomes much more difficult for us to relate, so then we begin to interpret it. We've talked about this before. And likewise, if if the rich are the bad ones in the text, we interpret that away so that it's not necessarily the case that we have to identify with those who will fade away, as James says. We are uh, in poverty, it just is a spiritual poverty. And I get it, because we like money. We want money. We work so that we can have money. We like things. We want things. We work so that we can have things. Many of us have too many things, but I don't think that there's a way that we can necessarily get ourselves out of the bind that we find ourselves in when we read this passage. In light of the larger context of the book of James, it seems to be focused on the rich and the poor as we understand those terms and probably it is the case that we identify closer with the rich i've been also saying for the last few weeks that that james has dedicated himself to the teachings of his brother uh, who is jesus and this is what sages in the ancient world did they would internalize the teachings of their chosen sage. And and think about it. Jesus talked a lot about this dichotomy between the rich and the poor as well. We usually do the same things when we hear Jesus talking about this because it makes us uh, equally uncomfortable. But, you know, Jesus talked about money a lot. And this is what we say. But when we talk about it in that way, I think we're selling the conversation short. He's talking about the rich and the poor. Here's some examples. And, and these might be Uh, There might be room for further discussion, but just hear me out. They're all from the book of Luke. Luke has uh, an agenda here, as do all gospel authors, but Luke's agenda is made pretty clear. In the first sermon that Jesus preaches in Matthew and Mark, interestingly enough, this sermon is buried. It's way late in the book, or not way late, but it's just not, not emphasized. It's not privileged. In Luke, however, it's sort of plucked out of its context and Placed as the very first thing that Jesus does after his uh, baptism and temptation. He comes back to the synagogue. He finds the attendant with the scroll. He gets a scroll. He unrolls it. It's in the book of Isaiah, and he begins to read from the book of Isaiah, and he says this in front of the, the congregation, "...the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor." He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, we oftentimes very quickly spiritualize what Jesus is talking about. Oh, this is the spiritual poor. This is the spiritual blind. This is the spiritual oppressed. But Jesus... I think at least if you follow his ministry, he is actually healing blind people. He is actually setting the oppressed free. He is actually ministering to the poor. Check out the Beatitudes. Uh, This is uh, in Luke's text. I believe this is in the Sermon on the Plain, which is distinct from Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. A lot of the teachings overlap here. We get the Beatitudes in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. We find them in Luke chapter 6, and they're they're a little bit different. Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, when they reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. So he's setting up this, this blessing for people who are poor. And again, we immediately go into a spiritualized interpretation. Well, it's a, it's a spiritual poor, it's a spiritual hungry, it's a spiritual weeping, that sort of stuff. But check out the, the contrast. In verse 24, he says, but woe to you who are rich. Plousios. It's the same term. Jesus seems to be talking in, in socioeconomic uh, categories, the rich and the poor. Uh, Later on in in Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist is beginning to doubt that Jesus is the guy because of the things that Jesus is doing. So he sends a couple of his disciples to go check on Jesus, uh, and Jesus says, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, all things that Jesus did in his ministry yet we like to talk about them in spiritual terms because we can't identify with with those folks and then he caps it off and the good news is proclaimed to the poor do you want to hear something that's interesting here something that often goes unnoticed this teaching this socioeconomically focused teaching this this dichotomy between the rich and the poor. This didn't originate with Jesus. I think sometimes we kind of feel like God, uh, you know, sends teaching to, to Jesus, downloads it into his spirit. It kind of comes out of nowhere. But Jesus, remember, is embedded in a first century Jewish context. He has been formed by the people around him. That's fair to say. So this teaching that that he gets here. This is something, according to Luke's gospel, that also comes from Jesus' mom, Mary. In chapter 1, in her song that's referred to as the Magnificat, after she has been told about uh, her upcoming birth of Jesus, the Savior of the world, she sings, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble State. This is the same word uh, in in James, the lowliness, the the poverty, the humble circumstances. For God, Mary says, has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. She continues uh, later on. It says, he has brought down, this is God, has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Same phrase in, in James, more or less. It's those who are the believers with humble circumstances will see that or should see that as something that is lifting them up while the rich will be brought low. Mary sings in the next verse, he has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich, the plousias, away empty. I recently read that in the 1980s, in the midst of civil war, any public reading of the Magnificat was banned by the Guatemalan government because it was deemed to be politically subversive. Which, which is a far cry from the standard Americanized version of Mary that we get in our Christmas pageants, you know? She's meek and she's mild and she's compliant. A perfect cast is thought to be, the, to be one of the quietest women in the congregation. Oh, look how mild and meek she is. She barely even talks, and now she's riding a donkey on wheels that's being pushed up to the front of the sanctuary. That's cute. However, in, in the Magnificat, we see a more realistic version of Mary singing a song that was banned by a government in the midst of civil war, lest the, uh, the, the poor rebels sort of overthrow the government. This is a more realistic version of Mary. She's a young woman who thumbed her nose at the establishment, who said rulers will be defeated, the poor will be lifted up, the rich will be sent away. Mary was bold. She was brave. She was resolute. Mary would not only have been at the protest, she would have been holding the bullhorn. Now, Scott McKnight writes, The Mary of the Bible is never portrayed as a somber-faced or or emotionless woman. Mary was a muscular, wiry woman whose eyes were aglow with a dazzling hope for justice and whose body evoked a robust confidence in the God who was about to turn the world upside down through her son. And this is the woman who taught Jesus and James. It, it's, it's really no wonder that both of them include similar themes in their teaching. I was in the car the other day and I was riding along and the kids are in the back seat and we were having this this conversation and uh, one of the kids said at, at one point, they said, Dad, will all people go to heaven? Which is a loaded conversation to have in the car, but we usually have these conversations. So I gave them what I got. We talked about heaven about what it is, about where it is. We talked about restoration. We talked about Jesus' death and resurrection. We talked about universalism. Now, I'm hoping my kids will not be royally screwed up by me, uh, but I know they're going to ask good questions and give some of their teachers a hard time when you know, they're talking about Noah and the flood. I think my kids are going to have some things to say here, but my kids get what I got. Mary's kids got what she had, which was a radical theology of God's justice and concern for the poor. Yet, much like Mary in our Christmas pageants, we've tamed the socioeconomic factors in the teachings of both of her sons. A rhetorical question here. Why do you think that is? Another rhetorical question. If it's not meant to be tamed... How do we hear it? Look again at what James says. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Now, there's a lot of scholarly questions about this passage. For example, are the rich people part of the in-group or the out-group? Uh, What does it mean that they will pass away or fade away? Also, who is the active agent against the rich? Is it God? Is it the poor? I, I don't think we need to get into all of these questions right now. In fact, this is how I want to conclude this talk. If the rich are the antagonists in this piece of wisdom, if they should take pride or boast in their humiliation, which is a difficult line, But if they are being warned of their impending doom and if the passage concludes by saying that they will fade away and let's tie this together. And if most of us have money or at least lodging and clothes and and food, if we want for very little in terms of material things, then how can we subvert the fate of being aligned with the powerful? How can we be Uh, How can we subvert the fate of being aligned with the rich that are described in this passage? And actually not just in this passage, but the Jesus passages in the New Testament as well. This is what I'm going to suggest. Rather than attempting to reinterpret and and spiritualizing these passages, I would say that we should take an inventory of our lives. I would suggest that we think about our generosity, our external focus, our awareness and action toward the poor in our community and in the world. I would also suggest that maybe we protect what is ours, or thought to be ours, a a bit less. And instead, we consider opportunities to align with those on the margins. Admittedly, it's not just about money. I get that. It's about time. It's about energy. It's about our prayers. We could pause there and say, are we praying for global poverty are we pay are we praying for those who are struggling to pay their bills in our own community? It's also about a radical countercultural move to actually practicing the things that we say this passage is about, being humble, being meek, being subservient, placing others before ourselves, loving others, fighting for justice, all of that that we say uh, is indicative of a of a lowly posture befitting a follower of Jesus. Yeah, it's not just about money, but I also don't want to diminish the role that money plays in our lives and how we spend it. In fact, I would argue that we can't be humble, meek, subservient. We can't place others before ourselves. We can't love others well or fight for justice without being generous with our finances. I would also argue that we can't do that without entertaining big ideas of how we might help. Maybe that's volunteering. Maybe that's mentoring. Maybe that's sponsoring a family that might be devoid of the opportunities that we have. In my notes here, I I make mention of the fact that both of my kids play on soccer clubs. Perhaps we could sponsor some kids that might want to play soccer and meet that practical and tangible need. How do we do that? I'm not really sure. Maybe that's partnering with a good nonprofit. Sharing stuff on Facebook, which is free, but really good marketing for them. It might be volunteering with, with them. It might be sponsoring them financially. Maybe, and I want you to brace yourselves here, maybe it's fostering. Maybe it's adopting. Maybe it's, it's building an in-laws suite in your backyard and housing some folks. I know that sounds insane. And for some of you, you're not at a place where you can do this. But others, you are. It's doable. Now, here's the deal. I don't want us to be the community that quickly resorts to spiritual interpretations to get ourselves off the hook from living like Jesus. I'm not asking you to sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Jesus did, but I'm not. I'm asking all of us to consider what it looks like to become a believer in humble circumstances. At TRP, uh, the week that I preached this sermon, we had asked people to bring in feminine hygiene products for a local nonprofit, the uh, Phoenix Youth Project. And I had told people t- that we could meet this really practical and tangible need. And this was a step for us. But what's the next step? I really don't think that we are the lowly, as James describes, not yet. But I do believe that we are called.